City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, playwright, director, choreographer you to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. They're coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Now in their 28th year, these seminars give you an opportunity to share with the panelists their experiences in professional theatre. Today's seminar focuses on playwrights, directors, and choreographers. These are the artists who provide the creative heart of the theatre, and breathe life into those marvelous productions we see on the stage. I hope that this discussion will show us how the magic of theater is created. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theater Wing, and I would now like to introduce you to our moderator for the seminar, founder of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, George C. White. George. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I would like to introduce our exciting panel, and I will begin on my far right with playwright August Wilson, and uh, next to him is Pamela Gein, who is a playwright and actress, or actress and playwright, however she wants to bill that, and my immediately right is uh, Lonnie Price, who is a playwright, director, and actor, again, in any, uh, you know, order you wish. Um, to my immediate left is uh, Joel Swit, who is a director, and uh, we seem to have all the directors and choreographers on this side. Um, Rebecca Taylor, who is also a director, and immediately next to her is Randy Skinner, who is a choreographer, and I also believe a director as yes. well. Um, so I would like to, if I may, begin the uh, proceedings this uh, day with uh, a question to August Wilson. Um, for many, many years, or for centuries actually, um, poets have been have turned into playwrights, or playwrights into poets, but mostly poets into playwrights. And uh, I know that you indeed have done so. What can you? Would you like to talk about what what makes poetry so allied somehow to the theatrical process? Rather than, I know it's telling a story, but. Why didn't you choose to tell a story by writing short stories or novels instead? Mm -hmm. Well, I started, uh, I started my career as a poet in, on April 1st, 1965. Uh, I consider poetry, I think, is, is for me the, the highest form of uh, literary art. Uh, so, of course, naturally, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and I spent the, the better part of uh, 10, 15 years trying to write uh, two lines, the equal of John Berryman's, uh, I saw nobody coming, so I went instead. It was me. It's still the greatest lines of poetry I read. Uh, when I started my career writing plays in earnest in 1979, I realized that, under, that I had something, and I had all these years of writing poetry, uh, which uh, someone, I read a, a definition of poetry as the enlargement of the sayable. Uh, 
and I had all that. You know, the poem is is a distillation of ideas into basically images and using metaphors and things of that sort. So when I started writing the plays, underneath all the plays, my years of training is is a, is a, is a poet. So my plays tend to have metaphors. They tend to have images. They tend to be the approach to them. You know, is the approach of a poet in terms of the, the certain ways of thinking and, and trying to find the core uh, essence and idea that you want to communicate. So uh, it's just a natural uh, kind of thing, I think, uh, for me. The distillation of metaphor and, and the all ideas and yeah, the, the training of poetry. Uh, I'm sure you can make the other thing also. Playwrights can write poems. It's terribly, terribly difficult to write a good play, but it's even ter more difficult to write a good poem. Uh, how about directing a good play or a poem? Would anyone like to leap in on that one? Yeah, I've actually once directed a poem, which was easily the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. A friend of mine wrote a 72-page poem about life, birth, death, after death, this whole cycle of nature. 72 pages of poetry, and I actually staged this thing. I have no idea to this day what I did. <laughs> but. Um, it was remarkable. Huh? It was truly remarkable because nothing exists in the, in the real world. It all exists in metaphor. It all exists in illusion. It all exists in the world of imagination, which made it kind of fun as a director to attack. It had no potential for commercial success whatsoever, <laughs> as you might well imagine. But uh, we were very involved in it at the time. I remember rolling around on floors and having quite a good time with this piece of poetry. Huh. Well, of course, John Brown's body w was staged very, very successfully, that's and right. it continues to be that's right. as, a, as, a, as really an epic poem. As an epic poem, that's um, right. As a, as a, a director, for instance, uh, Rebecca, how, uh, what's your take on, on directing? Well, tell me about The Gathering, which I know. Well, <coughs> the playwright, R.G. Shaw, is uh, a poet. Uh, uh, there is such musical, um, the images that he uses and the musicality, this play and then another play that we will be working on and have did last fall at EST, called Magic Hands Freddy. He is very poetic. And the hardest thing sometimes, because it was a play that was quite oh, long, and getting through some, what images to keep that serve the play, serve the theatricality, serve the story, and what we could lose was a, a very hard process, because he would say, I would say, well, can we, let's cut this, and he'd say, no, 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 the, uh, the, the musicality my ear, I'd go, well, you know. So finding that balance between uh, telling the story and keeping the poetry, because the poetry is part of what makes that playwright <laughs> tick. Yes. And you can't cut it. Yes. And you can't argue with someone who has that kind of ear. Fortunately, I feel that I have tuned in to uh, some of his musicality and his poetry. But that's mm. one of the reasons I love him. No, I was saying I go through the same thing, and, and you know, and I don't know why, you know, a poem is such a relatively short thing that I end up with these nine pages of <laughs> monologue. <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but very often, you know, what seems to be expendable, what seems to be something that you can cut, to me is absolutely no. And it, it, it's the I don't mind cutting, you know, I, I, I'll throw out half of the, the, you know, keep the four pages, but it has to be the right four pages. And a lot of times, People don't always know because they're not, you know, exactly why a certain thing is there, why it's said a certain way. So you do have to keep it for the musicality or for the meaning or for, you know, the other. And I go, no, I got to keep this. I'll lose all the rest. But this is, I mean, for instance, there was a line and the guy goes, uh, I've seen people beat up love. And the guy goes, cut that. I go, no, I'm not going to mm. cut my beat up love. <laughs> I, you know, I'll cut some other stuff. But there's, you know, something about that. I mean, the idea of people, he's talking about love and I've seen people beat up love. 
You know, so, I've seen people well, put love in a box and try to live without it. Theater is still one of the few places where language can be exalted. It should be, yeah. And should be. I mean, you're not going to get that happening in, in feature films. You're certainly not going to get it happening in television. Yeah. You're going to only chance of getting it to happen is in the theater. I needed you when I was like cutting. Uh, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. So sometimes act. I found that with uh, RG's work, sometimes actors want to cut too soon because they want to. Um, they want to do the conflict. They want to get to the chase. They want to be linear about it. When uh, RG used to call it curls. He likes yeah. these curls, mm -hmm. and it was very. Uh, took some discipline on my part and on the actor's part to say, no, we need that. We need the images, but that's a beautiful line. Mm -hmm. It may not be linear, it may not be straight on, and that's what's beautiful about it. Well, now, of course, musicals are full of poetry. Of a different sort, yes. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's, it still is. <laughs> yes, you know, absolutely. And, and um, where do you come down? Of course, you're in the middle of doing everything at once, but... Uh, yeah, stupidly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, well. I mean, I had a very particular situation with this musical that uh, it's called a class act, and it's um, it's the story of Ed Kleban, the lyricist of a chorus line, and what we found, we we wrote backwards, August. I mean, in a very strange way, we had these songs, and um, I was not a fan of the I am not a fan of the review form, which it, I, I I mean I, I don't mind watching them, but I don't have a clue as to what makes them work, and so I like book show. I mean, I like book shows and books. I'm the guy who likes in cabaret, you know, perfectly marvelous, and you know, not the, the money song. And ca I like I like the story songs. That's where I grew up. So uh, we had this collection of songs, and we decided because they had a very unique perspective. All of the songs were urban and sophisticated, and uh, had a very particular point of view uh, because they're called from five unproduced shows. That we could actually make a score of them and tell the story of this man's life because they were so. Uh, connected to his point of view and his aesthetic. Um, so uh, we fashioned a show, a book show, around his life using these pre-existing songs, which is a very peculiar way to go about it. I don't recommend it to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. It sounds fascinating, actually. <laughs> I've actually kind of just done it with, uh, with Gershwin alone. Same situation. Right. I have a, 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 a thousand songs to choose from sure. uh, that George Gershwin has written during his, uh, during his life. And uh, we had to build the story of George Gershwin using around his using his material. Well, using then it's, quite, it's actually quite some. We have eight characters. I mean, we, and it goes through a you know, period of Yeah, we went uh, through a transitional 25. period where we, just, we finally decided to title the show George Gershwin Alone <laughs> to finally put to rest the concept of chorus girls yes. and the, uh, you know, uh, two men and two women singing fascinating rhythm in the background while, you know, <laughs> some kind of a mimed episode was happening in front of a, a curtain. We, si we simplified it to one man and his love for his audience. Uh -huh. And that became the, the hook for the entire show. It I took see. a while to get there. Truly amazing how long it took to get to the, uh, the simplest point of view. It had to be a relationship between a man and his audience. It wasn't between him and his brother. It wasn't between him and questionable women or questionable men in his life. It was about him and his audience. And once we got it simplified to that place, it started to fall into place. How did you get there? Nine months of hard work. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he, uh, the first piece that I received from Hershey, who plays George Gershwin, uh, I think he was telling the story of George Gershwin from the point of view of a man in a coma. And I didn't quite understand what a man, how, how, how does a man in a coma voice anything? I was having difficulty <laughs> theatricalizing this concept. 
because uh, it didn't make any sense to me. So little by little, we started to find a reality level. We started to heavily relate to him and his brother. Him and his mother is a major relationship in his life. And although all those relationships are depicted in the play, essentially it's what he does with his audience, because that's why he's coming back, theoretically. Mm -hmm. To speak to that audience, to say, hey, you know, don't forget me. I want to be remembered as one of the great American composers. Because when he died, he thought he wasn't. Mm -hmm. Last three or four years of his life, he figured he was a complete failure by that point, mm. which is pretty amazing. It's right up there with Puccini, who felt the same way. Yeah, there's exactly. a load of them that, that actually they, they felt that way, right. which says something about society. Huh? Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Randy, you, uh, uh, as, a, as a choreographer and a director, um, are faced, I, I assume, with two issues. We're talking about characters here. Uh, uh, there seem to be two ways to choreograph, am I correct? One from character. Mm -hmm. And the other is just simply big splashy numbers, right? Yeah. How? What? What? Where do you do you work both ways? Or sure. Well, I'm doing Forty Second Street night right yes. now, so I'm kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum with a cast of fifty-three and a budget of over fifteen million. So, uh, and we have a wonderful producer who has it. So, um, knock on wood. And, uh, yes, it's kind of. I was brought up by David Merrick. He mm -hmm. was the one who introduced me to the theater and gave me my start. And it's the same kind of feeling 21 years later on the exact same show, having one man head this production. It's in association with the Dodgers, but it's also being produced by a Dutch gentleman named Joop van Endend, who um, has a lot of money and loves musical theater and was a television magnet in Holland, sold his production company and decided to devote the rest of his life to producing musical theater in Europe and now in America. And uh, quite a gentleman. So, it's nice to have that kind of deep pockets because when you get to the point of editing or needing something new on stage, the checkbook comes out and the check is written. And we have gone through that. We added a new piece of scenery just two nights ago to the show that was needed. And uh, it was sketched up by Doug Schmidt and then sent to the design company and two days later we had a drop. So, it's... Um, Yes, back to your question about character, though. We have character-driven songs in 42nd Street, which are wonderful book moments. And then, of course, we have a chorus of 24 girls and 12 gentlemen. So we have huge production numbers that... Uh, but a good number should have a beginning, middle, and end. And when talking about editing, it's equally hard to edit a dance number. Mm -hmm. If it's very well constructed with your dance arranger and you get to the point where you need to take 10 minutes off of the show, and mm -hmm. all departments have to help out with that, including book, music, and dance. You have your meetings, and you decide, okay, can you take so many measures out of this number? And you think, oh yeah, a piece of cake. But it's not, because you have to go and you have to look at the overall construction. And this phrase of music leads into something else, so you can't really cut that. And how does this step go into something? And I was faced um, with quite a few decisions when we moved into the theater, because we have a big staircase at the end of the show that's 10 feet in the air that comes out from the back wall hydraulically. And I didn't have a staircase to choreograph the number in rehearsal. <laughs> so I had to imagine it, and I, it came pretty close. As did your dancers, I imagine. As our dancers yes. did. And we also have a big mirror that comes down and tilts and that, o that goes on a turntable. And again, we didn't have that in rehearsal, obviously. So it was interesting to get into the theater, and then during tech days, have to re-choreograph, splice, get people out of the way so they didn't get a head chopped off, and all sorts of things. So it's, it's a fascinating process. But I, I like character-driven songs, too, like Lonnie, because I think they're, they're um, challenging uh, 
because you have to keep furthering the book and make sure that you're on, on the right track. But then, of course, the audiences just adore the numbers where the, all 36 kids are out there and you're tapping up a storm. It, it, there's, it, it needs both, a show like that. How do you learn to be a choreographer? I, I don't think, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know of any university or school that gives a degree in choreography. Right, yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. You get dance degrees, of course. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I started dancing at age four, and I still take class. I take class two, three times a week. Um, I think if you're going to be a good choreographer and bring something to your your dancers, you must stay on top of it yourself. Plus, I still dance myself and perform, like Lonnie, I do both, so it's, uh, I have to stay in shape. I think the more technique you have in your craft, um, I was a student of films, so I, I grew up watching films. Busby Berkeley movies? Uh, yeah, of course, mm -hmm. and <laughs> Fred and, <laughs> Fred and Ginger movies. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to work with Ginger twice, and with these two gentlemen speaking, I'm working on a a project about Ginger Rogers' life, where we're also taking the, the songs that she made famous in mm -hmm. the films and having to write a story based on her life around the chosen songs. So it's a challenge to take a, a, a catalog of material. That's essentially what 42nd Street was also. They took the Warren and Dubin catalog of Hollywood songs, which were many, and then they, they fashioned this book around what songs they decided to choose for George? the production numbers. I'd like to pick up on, you said, how do you learn to be a choreographer? Mm. How did you get to David Merritt? Well, I was doing, this is a fascinating story, I was doing a um, musical version of Al Jolson's life. The first, there's been many, but this was the very first how one. How old were you then? Where did you come from? I came from Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. I was right out of college, and I was dancing at it. And the dance arranger on 42nd Street happened to be the musical director of the Jolson Project. Now, at the same time, I was offered to da dance in Sugar Babies, because I had worked with Ann Miller in uh, Summer Stock when I was in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, John Kenley had a big Summer Kenley Stock Blair, company, Kenley yes. Blairs. He started me. Mm -hmm. So what happened was uh, Sugar Babies was going to go on the road for six months, and Al Jolson, the Al Jolson musical, was going to try out in Long Island so I could commute from home and stay at home and be in New York. So I turned down Sugar Babies and stayed with the Al Jolson musical. Well, Al Jolson closed on Long Island. Sugar Babies <laughs> ran for eight or nine years. Yeah. Larry Kurt. Larry Kurt, because I actually Kurt. saw that production. Yes. I was out there on the island and saw that production. Yes. I thought it was darn good. Yeah, it was a darn good production. It was a good production. So every time I walked by the Mark Hellinger Theater and saw all the four boys behind Anne, it was like, hmm, wrong decision. <laughs> but then, <laughs> Gower Champion needed somebody to work with him on the original 42nd Street. The dance arranger and conductor from the Al Jolson musical was on board for 42nd Street. My name was submitted. So out of that project that I thought I had made the biggest mistake of my life, being a 25-year-old dancer, came the connection to Gower Champion, David Merrick, and then 21 years later, here I am bringing the new show. Isn't it a great story? It's all about and I tell it when I teach in colleges. It's, it's so all about stepping through the open door yeah. and proving your worth. Oh, yeah, I tell you. Go ahead, Len. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think your question that was fascinating is, is that I think there actually should be courses in, in, in Northwestern and in all of the universities to teach choreography. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I know when I'm directing a show, uh, the list of choreographers is almost non-existent. I mean, right. the years that, you know, Michael Bennett and Gower sure. Champion and Bob Fosse was like one year we lost all yeah, of them. That's right. And uh, they've not really been replaced, and there are a few people who are terrific who get all the shows. That's right. But when you're looking for a young choreographer, they come in to speak with me, and 
how do you choose a choreographer you if you judge? can't see their work? Yeah. And because of equity and all of the rules, we're not allowed to tape anything. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's illegal bad tapes that are like That's home right. movies, and you really can't see it. So actually, Randy, I, I, I would love to talk to you at some point about seeing if we could establish I mean, I, I mean, I think something needs to be done and a forum for their work where they can, you know, get together a group of directors right. and show, do like a showcase night Showcore. or week of new choreographers because it's very, and choreographers for modern dance and they right. don't easily translate to the theater. I mean, we really need to, to make new theater choreographers. It's true. There was a thing called the American Dance Machine. I remember, but that, that was I did the preservation. Very first company. Yeah, it was in the yeah, world with the company Theodore. And, yes. and uh, sadly, because out of that was growing young people learning. Yes. Um, uh, we were talking about where people come from, which is why I've saved this question for Pamela, because uh, uh, sort of not for last, but for cleanup. That's an American baseball illusion. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, tell us about where you, uh, about your background, because uh, you really started as an actress, and where, and then, and then, what, would you say backed into your production, or? Well, pretty much, really. I had no idea that I would ever write anything. And uh, I must say, at the outset, to be sitting uh, with this esteemed company and to be called a playwright and sit next to this man <laughs> is really um, humbling. And um, I, I had, um, I suppose you would say, a very conventional journey as an actress. I worked, you know, always saying other people's lines and grateful to do that, honored to do it, and really had no idea that I would write something until I was... Um, about five years ago in a class with Larry Moss um, and he's an extraordinarily gifted teacher. Um, I went in just as I would go in any other day and uh, he said turn to the person next to you and tell them a story and it could be something that happened to you today or it could be something that happened a long time ago and the story of my grandfather's murder came into my mind and I had really not thought about that for well it happened when I was 10 and I've changed the chronology of it in the play but um, well, tell us about that and where you're, I mean, you're from South Africa. I'm, yes, I'm I'm, in I, I was born in South Africa and, and raised there and uh, I left there when I was um, 26 years old and I was saying to you earlier, I really ran away. I couldn't bear what was happening. I didn't know how to make sense of it. I didn't know how to change it, how to fix it. I just um, felt this tremendous sense of confusion and hopelessness about it. It seemed to me like uh, the Berlin Wall, that it would never come down. And then when that came down, it seemed like the most extraordinary miracle in the world that that had actually happened and people were taking pieces of it and it was this. And um, I had the same feeling about apartheid there, that it was just this rooted, insidious, evil thing that was going to be there forever. Although I knew many people who were you know, desperately working for change for many, many years, but I personally was not called to be a revolutionary, and I didn't know how I fit into that. So I came to America. Also, I was a young person. I was excited about the idea of coming to the land of the brave and the free and what that <laughs> meant. And um, anyway, so there I was. You know, I, I've worked a lot as an actress. I've had um, the great fortune of working with extraordinarily gifted people and being able to learn in that process but really never thought I would write. And then Larry said, uh, as that story came into my mind, he said, 
And I was thinking, gosh, what an awful thing. I haven't thought about that in so many years. I'll just quickly think of something else. And as I thought that, Larry said to the class, don't censor whatever it is that just came into your mind. Tell that story. So I thought, oh, great, stuck with this. <laughs> I turned and told the person next to me. And um, it's really an extraordinary experience because I began to remember at 10 years old what my thought process was in the car coming home from my grandfather's funeral. And this was an attack on white farmers very early in the days when this was not even now. It's a very, um, you know, a, a huge um, and well-known thing that's happening there. Then it was absolutely unheard of. We were completely surprised, and particularly, I think, because my grandfather was such a humane and um, extraordinary man who um, had black families living on his farm illegally. Um, and he allowed them to have, you know, parts of the land to farm for their families. And so there was this, but this was a freedom fighter from Rhodesia, we were told, um, who came across the border at nighttime. And it was such a shocking and frightening event at that age to try to process what that really meant and who we were and who they were. And anyway, then I began to, um, you know, uh, tell that story to the person next to me. and. And then Larry said, the second part of the exercise is to stage the story that you just told. So I went away and thought, oh my gosh, how will I do this? And I didn't know many um, black South African actress, actors in um, Los Angeles at the time. Um, so I thought, well, what I'll do is just play around with the dialects and the parts myself and see, but then, you know, I'll just bring it in as, a, as an improv to the class. And I did it absolutely shaking from head to toe, knowing that I had really run away, that I had never been able to talk about who I am really, that I tried. I worked always in America as an American. I was more American than anybody. I was able to do every single dialect I was able to. So that was my career. But to stand up as myself was the most frightening experience. And I thought for sure everybody would say, this is the stupidest thing, or this is really what is this? Or People stood up and were weeping and applauding, and I thought I had gone mad. Um, and Larry said to me, this is extraordinary material. You have to write it as a film, and you have to write it as a play. And I think because I'm such a new writer, I, um, I just went and did those two things, um, really trying to write with no judgment as to you know how appalling the structure was, how <laughs> bad the poetry was, how you know, all, all the things we know to, to constitute extraordinary writing. And I brought it to Larry, and Larry, um, you know, I thought then he would say, well, we will have a group of actors, we'll just read it and then invite some actors. And he said, no, you're going to perform it yourself. <laughs> and uh, I would beg him to bring other actors, <laughs> I'd say to him, just to say one line, just one line <laughs> would be a treat. But um, we started to work, and we worked every day for almost three years. And um, it became a play. Um, and it's really different, I suppose, than a one-person piece because it's a play from beginning to end. It's an epic story about a family. It spans four generations. I play all the, the characters. I think it's about 28 different characters. And um, I would say that it has taught me more as an artist than any process I've ever I've ever engaged in, because I've had to take responsibility um, every step for all the things that we've just been mm. talking about. Well, August, you are also, of course, you come from 
storytelling as, as, as does Pamela. And what, of course, plays are, as we all know, are the late uh, Edith Oliver always used to say to playwrights before they would tell them about the theme, as you know, because you knew Edith, sure. saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, once upon a time, what? Yes. yes. And uh, that, but uh, you you started with the storytelling too. You came out of that. Uh, oh, oh absolutely. <coughs> uh, storytelling is it's a it's a lar large part of black culture, man. I, there was a uh, uh, John Lar who was a, wrote a profile in the, in the New Yorker. He went to Pittsburgh, and he went to Eddie's restaurant. His restaurant, and and he came back and he was like talking to me, and it's like. The, what the people had to say, they, t they told stories to, s to communicate with one another. So there was like five different stories going on. And he was just fascinated with that idea that a way of communicating in a conversation was to tell a story. You know, and I go, yeah, that's, that's where it comes from, you know. So very often in, in my plays is this, you know, uh, and, and, and putting the culture on stage and demonstrating its ability to, to sustain uh, uh, black Americans, you know, and doing that, there's a lot of storytelling. It's just a, a part of uh, the, the culture coming out of oral tradition where uh, it was a way of passing along information. And of course, in order to keep the information alive, then you, if you make the story, you want to make it memorable so that someone will then go and repeat it and repeat it over and over and the information is kept alive. So that's the, the first responsibility of, 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 the, of, the sto of storytellers to make the story memorable so that it can be passed along, you know. Uh, and then you go from the story, and then if you add music to it, uh, the which provides an emotional reference for the information, then you have something called blues, you know, which I want to know. I want to know how and where you started storytelling. Uh, how? Uh, first grade, fifth grade, <laughs> kindergarten, <laughs> my okay. home, my mother. Where? You know, from the beginning. You All know? Right. First and sixth grade, where in a school? Oh yeah, in a, in a school. Actually, in fact, when I was in uh, third grade, uh, I, I was writing stuff, and I had a wonderful teacher who would let me, you know, read stuff to the class. And it was like stop everything, you know, and I, and I would stand up and read uh, uh, whatever story, uh, whatever thing I'd written at the time. You know, I'm seeing a kind of a funny parallel between yes. what, you know, you're being a performer de facto with your work and Pamela. When did the storyteller become the playwright? <coughs> uh, I started writing plays in earnest in uh, 1979. Uh, when I wrote Jitney, actually, uh, 20 some years ago, was my first. Uh, uh, what was the first play? Jitney. Okay. Yes, in uh, 1979. And your second was Ma Rainey, which. And my second was Ma Rainey, and, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, I, I'd written, uh, you know, uh, one act uh, prior to that, but. Uh, I said, in earnest, when I started writing plays in earnest for 1979. Yeah. Well, now, music speaks to you, I know, tremendously. I mean, not just Ma Rainey, but all through your work. And in a sense, you have, you've written plays with music, because I think of you, you know, not just Ma Rainey, obviously, sure. but throughout your work, it speaks to you. And you say, when you put that to music, you've got blues. Now, Joel, you would say, your, your play, now, the Gershwin is a play with music. When um, now I know your plays are, are, are plays with music. Tell me about also Gershwin as plays with music and how that informs the uh, the entire experience going there. Well, what's the difference between a musical with Bob Gershwin? I mean, obviously August can sort of get away with with you know music in your plays, but you are yeah, doing a play about Gershwin. Right? Why do we call it a play with music? 
because essentially we felt that the dramatic premise and the storytelling of this man's uh, remarkable life and, uh, and, and one of the other things about it was the fact that we were trying to uncover to some degree a process or explaining a process of creativity which normally doesn't get explained in these things, how he wrote his songs, why he thought that something needed to be in F major or F minor, or why he put in a certain orchestral statement here. And we felt that the play was, in essence, more important than the music. Uh -huh. what, about, what about uh, class act? Is that a musical or is it a play with music? That, that's How a, would you that's a real traditional musical because the songs um, not only illuminate character, but they advance the plot, and they also, they're also used as commentaries mm -hmm. as well. I mean, we use music in... in many different ways, but it essentially uh, it, it actually does, uh, if you take those songs out of the scenes, you can't play the scenes because the scenes are constructed mm -hmm. to serve the, the songs. songs. Mm -hmm. The songs are the events in my show and they also, uh, as I said, they also do advance the plot and you need them to get you from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, I, I also run Musical Theatre Works, which I is do. a not-for-profit theatre downtown uh, dedicated solely to developing new musicals and when I'm working with new writers, uh, if one of the key things is if you're looking at a musical and you can take the song out and still tell the story, you've got the wrong song. If, <laughs> if the song is not integral to getting you from one place to another, um, you, you haven't musicalized the event. You know, here's the event and the song's here or the song is there. That's not a musical. A musical is when you musicalize the event of the scene and you need it as a, as a bridging uh, as a bridging device. So I, I, mine is, I have not seen, unfortunately, Gershwin alone. I've been working, I'm working. Hasn't opened yet. Hasn't opened yet. That's okay, okay with thank that. you. That's, that, that's right, I'm glad you pointed it out. That's very interesting, you see, because when I, I took this stab at writing a musical, I, I was determined that it was going to stand without the songs. And indeed it did stand <laughs> without the songs, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you know, well, I suppose but, I could do I, Gershwin alone, which would be really stupid, and remove all the music. And maybe it would, and it would hold up. up. Yeah. Well, then, there, then but nobody would come to see music, it. But then yeah. it is a play. <laughs> but it would definitely hold up. There would be a great integrity going on on that stage at that particular point. Uh, that is, uh, you know, important. But now, for uh, August, though, this is—it's interesting. It's why it's so hard to get someone of your caliber to write a musical. Is is that the golden moments are the songs, and in your plays, for the me, poetry. the poetry and your monologues—those are the songs. And so they. What would be fascinating, I think, is if you were to write lyrics, if you were to write book and lyrics to a show, because then you could use your poetry to get you to the, you know, to the event yes, of the song, yes, the real yes, high point, and then, yes. I mean, I don't know if that would interest you, but it would be fascinating. Can we start oh, right now? I'm making a deal here. I'm making a deal. I know a good choreographer. That's right. There you go. Team here. But for me, a lyric is the most difficult thing to write. Now, Isn't it impossible? I've had, I've, as you know, I've had actors stand up on stage and say my words, et cetera, and, and, and yeah, it feels good. But in King Haley II, there's a scene and there's a waltz, and Leslie Uggams is this, and we have the music for the waltz, and it came up, well, maybe if she had a few words, she could sing. So I wrote four, it took me, forever to write four lines. Really? Okay, so I'm sitting there in a the theater, and she starts singing these four lines that I wrote, and it was the most, most glorious yes. experience <laughs> I've ever had. I think had, we have a know? lyricist. I think a lyricist <laughs> yeah, is born. And I, I said, hey, I want to write some more of this, because it was just, I mean, really, the four lines, it just was like... Well, your, your, your plays, the, the dialogue in your plays are so close to lyrics in some ways, because they have so much poetry to them. It would be 
fascinating to hear what you would do with that form. Well, then I think I have a misunderstanding what a lyric is. So maybe we should talk, talk about, about what lyrics that. are. <laughs> then, you know, yes, but I, yeah, I want to do it. I, I want to do that. I think the musical theater is, you know, is the American contribution to to world theater. You know, musical. And, and blues is, you know, music that's indigenous to the continent, et cetera. Absolutely. And no one has actually, t at least in my mind, in the way that I would do it, taken the two things and put them together. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be uh, an, an extraordinary thing, actually. I agree. Hmm? I just finished doing a, a Carol Churchill play that has not been done here, which is a dance theater piece. We're talking about music enhancing uh, a play. This was a piece that was seven stories it's non-linear it it's or it, she wrote it in the end of the 80s and uh, it's called mouthful of birds was called mouthful of birds it just closed but it was a story or uh, an experience that these seven people were having and the play advanced through movement mm. through choreo uh, 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 through movement through through dance and it was fascinating to try and make um, the same thing happened. It wasn't, and we added some music, but it yes, was really, they were not really music, it was really sound, but the, mm -hmm. the play moved forward with this dialogue, and apparently when she was doing it at the end of the 80s with joint stock, that what they were trying to do was find a nonverbal, mm -hmm. instead of it being music, it was nonverbal, it was movement, it was fascinating, and sure. scary, sure. and hard. Well, they, they danced uh, to sound and, and well, there words, wasn't so any there wasn't any sound in the script. I don't think they used it. I used it because I couldn't figure out a better way. Right. I couldn't figure out what to do other, and it seemed um, um, hollow without it. Mm -hmm. But the movement advanced the way a song did. It was like a musical, but a really a dance musical. It was. It was Would you odd. say it's not like co it's like contact, or it's or it's, it's yeah, other right. than because that no, certainly tries to do that. No, it it it. Uh, what would you say be the difference between that and a ballet, which indeed does, or is there? Well, I, I don't know a lot about the world of ballet, but this was really, there were dialogue, there were stories, it was connected oh that way. It ha was interwoven with the bakai, which is movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was a fascinating experience. I, it was great. Yeah, it was, it and was hard, very, like you and said. hard. It was hard. Yes. The, the movement advanced the play. Right. Hmm. Well, that you, you, of course, Randy, have every day. You have to, you have to try rather sure. than just having everything stop. But I suppose in a musical that can happen if you're going to do a production number. I think people can stop and look at that and then go on or am well, I wrong? Sure. I mean, the, like the ballet world has been, besides your big story ballets, you've always had opportunities just to have a, a dance piece on a, on a stage that, that has nothing to do except the beauty of movement connected to the music. And, mm -hmm. and that's why people are thrilled with dancing, usually. I, I have a theory that everybody, um, since we live in a society that doesn't dance all that much anymore, I mean, it was a big part of entertainment from the turn of century clear up to, I suppose, maybe, uh, well, I don't know when it stopped, when, when well, people didn't have ballrooms. Well, people don't dance anymore? No, I mean, I think it was a part, it was a way of life for, for many people all through uh, generations before me, where that's what you went out for entertainment, and people dance to music in the ballrooms and all of that. And uh, then we went through a period where we didn't touch when we danced in the 60s and 70s. So there wasn't really, you were dancing, but you weren't relating as a partner. And I think people today, when they see movement, 
it's, uh, it's thrilling for them. Plus, a lot of people don't feel that they can get up and dance, which is always a shame. I think everybody feels they can sing a song in a shower. You know, you're always singing, you're always humming, whistling. But it's easier than dancing in a shower. Well, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, people are fascinated. It's on the size of the shower. Yeah, you've got a major shower. People are fascinated by movement, and it is, the, I think, the hardest thing to do. People have a script you can take home and learn it at night. You have songs, you have sheet music to read. But dance is so ephemeral. You, uh, like getting Lonnie said, you can't film it. George, We're not allowed. So. Getting back to the theater, what happened to the concept that songs and music t took the show along to another place? That in a musical comedy, there was a story, and then you had the song that moved it along to another place that no longer exists now, that theory. Um, well, you'd say musical theater works. Well, I mean, I, I believe in that, that traditional form very much, and as you know from seeing my show, I mean, we, we do that. Um, I, I don't know. You're saying it doesn't exist because you think people aren't doing that anymore too much, Isabel? Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of the new musicals. I mean, uh, I, think, I think that form certainly is, you know, the producers are doing that well, traditional form, and we are. I, I, you know, contact isn't, obviously, because there's no, no singing at all. But um, I, I don't know. I, th I think that people still try and do Use that. It. Yeah, I, I do. I think they do. Well, no, it's a term I hear a lot is old-fashioned book musical. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know what that means. I don't know why you, why you have to say old-fashioned. Yeah, I was yeah, going to say that's the bad word. It sounds pejorative, and it isn't to me. I think mm -hmm. it's a good word because I don't think we've improved upon the form. I mean, mm -hmm. I think, you know, the, the form of telling stories with songs and, and movement and all of that, I think it's the most exciting theater there is to me because... Mm -hmm. I mean, I was thinking about when I was a kid. I mean, you get to hear a great orchestra. You get to see a great dance. You, you know, you get to hopefully hear, great hear a voices. drama. Yeah. Hear great you know, it's, it's the combination of all of those forms yeah. when done well, I think, is even more than the sum of its parts. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know. The, 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 I represent in my theater uh, 11 new writers, uh, Adam Gettle and Jason Robert Brown and uh, Janine Tesori among them. And... and uh, they're all young, vibrant writers who are trying desperately to keep this form alive and to reinvent it so that, I mean, to me, the shame of it is, is going to a musical and seeing people mostly in their 60s and 70s and 50s and nobody in their 30s and 20s. Where did you start? Well, Isabel, I started as an actor, as, as, as I was on this panel as an actor probably 20 years ago. That's right. Um, <laughs> I I, uh, it wasn't yes. 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, uh, it was, actually. Five years ago. Uh, yeah, right, there you <laughs> when I did Master Harold and the Boys uh, yes. with oh, the yes. Fugard play, the wonderful Apple Fugard play. And, uh, we have uh, a new generation. Excuse me? A new generation. <laughs> a new generation, yeah. So uh, I, I started as an actor and was an actor for many, many years. and. Uh, uh, someone had asked me to, when I was in a play, asked me for suggestions of a director for their next play, which happened to be a musical, and I gave them a list of people I thought were fine, and he said, what about you? And I directed it, and the next year I directed uh, The Rothschilds, which moved and ran a year, and I started getting scripts, and I became a director, which I was very happy to do, because uh, uh, I found an actor's, my uh, type as an actor was, the door was, it was narrowing, you know. I had this exact same experience. Yeah, so. You can only play character juveniles so long. <laughs> I was going to say you can only play character Jews so long. Yeah, it's character Jews juveniles. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. No, I was, uh, I was uh, thrilled when, uh, when I became a director because I was really going to be in major trouble as an actor. But I, uh, I had all my uh, initial work at La Mama. I, I spent uh, four years in the late 60s, early 70s. So if you have any idea of what my theatrical 
uh, orientation might be. It comes out of the, the late mm -hmm. 60s, early well, that 70s. That was the days of Tom O'Horgan. I was right there with O'Horgan, with Andre Sirban. We were mm -hmm. all there at the same period of time. It was a very exciting period of time, and that's where I basically was nurtured. And it was Ellen Stewart who made a decision. We were in the middle of rehearsal for a play called Last Chance Saloon, written by a pretty good actor, Andy Robinson. And uh, I was not directing it, and I was not in it, which was typical of my career up to that particular <laughs> point. I was uh, the least likely to succeed in my high school, I think. And uh, Ellen Stewart decided that she didn't like who was directing the play because she was afraid that it wasn't going to turn out well and decided I was going to direct the play. She, I'd never directed anything. She had no reason to believe that I could direct this thing. But somehow she decided I should direct it. And that, from that point on, I was a director. The play... Uh, thing opened on the West End of London, and they had a show on the West End of London. You know, so it was pretty impressive well, stuff. Ellen is, uh, is spooky that way. She's I mean, very she's spooky that way. I mean, she really has an incredible instinct that still exists at this point. Still stays with it, and she trusts it and uh, goes with it. But, yeah, uh, yeah so it was the uh, same thing. Luckily, lucky to find directing. How did you go from La Mama to television? I know yeah, this is about the one. theater, but, uh, that, but that's kind of a... Well, uh... And what out are the differences yeah, in dealing with well, that? Well, out of La Mama, we generated a, a, a musical called Dance With Me, which mm -hmm. uh, made it onto Broadway mm -hmm. and got me a Tony nomination in the 74-75 season, going up against Gower Champion as best choreographer. Mm. <laughs> uh, but that's a whole other story. But, uh, and I didn't win, surprisingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> Actually, Gower didn't either. Faison won yeah, the Wiz that year. Yeah, sure. But... Um, uh, they had a friend who was in the dance movie production who wrote it, who went out to Hollywood and was starting to act in situation comedies like Laverne and Shirley and what have you. So I was busy doing theater, and I went out to visit him, and he got it in his head that I should direct an episode of a situation comedy. And it didn't look like it was that much... You know, I'm a moxie kid from New York. It didn't look that difficult to me. I mean, here were actors who were playing the same role each week. It was like a comedia. They had stock <laughs> characters that they were playing, and all you had to do was kind of get some... get the actors in the script to kind of meet halfway in terms of what each would like to do. You could probably do something with that. Twenty-three years later, mm -hmm. 525 episodes of situation comedy later, I finally decided it was time to get back to the theater. Mm. Wow. You, yeah. you, can, you can get uh, uh, misdirected by people throwing money at you. <laughs> but now, you, you brought up something else, which uh, yeah, I've used this term before here, mental furniture. You just said commedia. Well, obviously, you know about commedia. Yes, my master's is in commedia. Well, your master's, oh, so you have a degree. Tell me about your education. I have a bachelor's from Brooklyn College and a master's from Brooklyn College, both of which I'm very proud of. In, uh, and my master's thesis was in Commedia. I directed a Commedia, and uh, that's how I managed to transfer into situation comedy without thinking it was too bizarre. I thought, well, this is Commedia. This guy's the Pantalone character, and this person's this character, and that person's that character. And they got their characters down, because for the most part, they're cast to be who they are. Mm -hmm. They're not being asked to stretch particularly, and it's just a question of problem solving. Each week, you solve the problems that any given script presents to you, some scripts are terrific, and uh, most of them were really hard work to try to make into, uh, you know, some sensible event. But uh, it became my job. So it's your education, I mean, going way back to that, that informed not only your time at La Mama, but also... Very much so. Into, into the, into Very the much so. I've, uh, or th if I've learned one thing, that there is no <coughs> sanctity to any genre. Uh, there is bad theater, there is certainly bad TV, and there's certainly bad films. And the only thing that holds it together is the personal integrity you bring to your work. Because that's all you've got. 
and, and if you hope to elevate any project you have to the next level, that it be a piece of theater, be it a, a film that you're shooting, or a television show, you, you're trying to get it to the next level, and you just do your work. Okay. Rebecca, what's your uh, education background? Um, <coughs> I went to Purdue. I'm from a little tiny town in, in Indiana. Kokomo. I went to Purdue. I, my mother sent me to Purdue to marry a man <laughs> who had a farm. <laughs> and every time I see her, she says, no, I think. And then from there, I went to Goodman School of Drama um, and did a very brief uh, year and then went on to uh, their regional company. I acted for 18 years also. So uh, I feel obligated to tell the truth here since have you acted August I never have no. <laughs> well we're going to have you act because yeah. it's a, yeah. it so the journey from acting into directing came about because I began to teach I began to produce which I loved producing um, it it got me as exhilarated as acting and then I began to speak with more than one voice and you can't act when you're thinking about how everybody else should do their work. Mm. When you're a control freak? Well, maybe. <laughs> My mother said, oh, you're very bossy. You'll do very well. Um, so uh, going into acting, uh, uh, going into directing was from an acting background. And so I, I'm not a big brain a director. I really feel that I work with actors and, and, and playwrights with relationships and, and that. But that's my background. I tend to think it's probably the orientation of most of us here. Uh, from acting. From acting yeah. mm -hmm. or from dancing to mm -hmm. choreography so that you basically, it's the ability to communicate to uh, people who are going through the same thing you've been through that makes the difference. To have some understanding of the process of an actor I think is, uh, is has been important. I'm learning about how to, to work with playwrights. I, I can't write a word. I've tried to write. Everything I write sounds contrived and stilted. <laughs> so uh, being able to, to work with uh, playwrights has been a really great gift, and that's what I enjoy the most. Mm -hmm. Well, now, Mike, were you out of a, out of a college, too? Or? Well, I went to a premier arts high school here in New York, uh -huh. and then I went to Juilliard and left. I had sort of a not good experience there. And uh, someone in the audience, I think, also had a not good experience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's better now. They tell me it's all better now. Um, but. Uh, Went th I went to Juilliard, and then what I did was, because I didn't want to be in an institution, I sort of broke up the classes for, for many years and took, uh, took acting class and speech class and voice class and dance class and all that. But I, I didn't want to be in an institution. Um, and um, I sort of, I only half regret it, but sometimes I think maybe it wasn't the best idea. But um, I started working very young. I was very lucky because I was out on the street auditioning at 18 or 19, and when anybody, everybody else was in school, which is where they belonged and where I should have probably been. But so I got in under the wire. The first few roles I played were as 17-year-olds, and the market for 17-year-olds is not that wide. So I felt that I s established an acting career, you know, very kind of s in a sneaky way by playing uh, people a little bit younger than I am. And then I was very fortunate to get a couple of really great roles. Uh, the Sondheim show, Merrily We mm -hmm. Roll Along, and, and then the same year, the Fugard play, which, uh, you know, I mean, uh, to open in a, a Stephen Sondheim musical in the fall in the lead role, and then the title role in the Maple Fugard play in the spring, that's quite a year. Good year. That was yeah, a good yeah, year. Yeah. And that was 20 years ago, Isabel, actually this year, 1981, that was. So um, I, was, I was very lucky. Well, um, about Pamela, did you, uh, what, do you have formal education? I do. I begged my parents to send me to the art school, and they would not. 
So I had to wait until I got to university and then I did an honours degree in... I went to Rose University in the Cape in South Africa and then I went to the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg and I did my um, honours degree in English and Dramatic Art. And then I had the great fortune to go and study at the Jacques Lecoq School in Paris and worked with all the neutral ma uh, masks and all that exquisite um, physical work. And I think as an actor I work very physically and very much from music and I was so curious about what you were saying about um, carrying the culture through the music and the stories and um, uh, that's my great love is to work physically and um, through sound and um, and language and the poetry and the language. I think it's a very sensorial experience for me. Um, and when I came back to um, South Africa and found that I just couldn't be there, I came to America and I was um, very, I was offered a, my very first job by Andre Sarban, who um, I've worked with subsequently many times and I just think is one of the most gifted um, painters in the theater. Uh, indeed, oh. yes. And, um, so I would say my, my, my work really has been um, informed so much by uh, great directors and choreographers and um, people who create and let you be part of that process so that you learn and get to give something. And it's only, I suppose, now that I feel I'm coming into my own where I feel I'm learning what I have to give that's of me and um, taking responsibility in the syringa tree. Um, what I, was, I just wanted to get back to the idea of music and the, the um, when I first started to stage the, the um, story exercise, the very first thing that came to me was all the music of the, um, particularly the black culture in South Africa and um, the songs that were sung to me as a child and the women who took care of me. And um, it was the most emotional experience to go back and really listen to those songs, to try to find recordings and try to, you know, having them remembered in my ears, but then listening to actual recordings of um, black women singing them. And then there was a song I remembered that the workers would sing as we would drive by, they would be digging trenches in the road. And that song, when I found what the words were of that song, um, it was so extraordinary to me because it was all about migrant workers to me as a child it was just the rhythm of the song and I associated it so much with that work but it was all about migrant workers coming on a train through away from their home desperately hoping to find work in the gold mines in South Africa so it's all steeped in the actual journey of uh, those people through their lives um, and that helped me tremendously in the creation of the syringa tree the, mm. the, um, the music um, the songs really brings so much memory, the, the feel of somebody's skin, the sound of their voice, the heart, you know, the, the idea that uh, we're all connected so profoundly. Are so you going to, uh, do you have another play that's happening inside of you now? You've, uh, uh, the, you've told the story of, of something in your past. Are there, is this been a, uh, are we watching a flower bloom here? <laughs> I <laughs> hope so. <laughs> I hope so, you know. While we were waiting for a space to become available uh -huh. in New York, I, uh, I did start to write another story. And um, I've written another, s I wrote it as a screenplay. Um, I don't think I, I realized really what I was doing, but I was writing the resolution of something that, that disturbed me very profoundly as a child, a story that I mm -hmm. heard mm -hmm. um, in my house as a very young child about something that had happened 
to somebody, and I, I won't tell the story here because it's a mystery, actually, the way I've, I've written it sort of unfolds, and if you know the end at the beginning. But um, it, it really, I'm finding that in my work as a, a new writer, um, I hardly dare say that word sitting next to you, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but as a new writer, I find in my work that my, my writing is really a... Um, a sort of a healing process for myself. It's a way of finding a resolution. And Seringatri, I began to write my own life, you know, and then I was realizing this is really self-conscious and dreary and nobody wants to know. And that's what I had the great gift of Larry Moss said to me, yes, but we don't care. And I would say, but this is so crucial. You don't understand. This is me. And you'd say, yes, we know, but we don't care. We don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized it's about something much greater and I get to be in service of something much bigger. And that's the... the um, that's what's happened for me in, in the writing of The Lily Field, which is the next piece I've written, and it's going to be produced as a film by Matt Salinger, who's the producer of The Syringa Tree. Mm -hmm. um, it's a resolution. Um, I've written it completely away from, from me, as I have now. The Syringa Tree is semi-autobiographical, but um, I found that I had a much greater scope to write to, a much um, deeper landscape to write into if I wasn't just connecting it to me, but of course it's deeply invested with. Mm -hmm much of my life. So. You used the word uh, which uh, in service of and uh, uh, the, the musical that I'm doing this man's work was sitting in a drawer essentially all of these songs a hundred of them that no one had ever heard and so I co-wrote the piece too and I felt very much as though we just wanted to get the songs out for him and mm -hmm. he because he's not here anymore and that was his passion and life was his music and um, I, I don't know but when you're doing it for another a, a reason that is not about yourself, I think it's just so freeing. And so uh, I think it helps the work so much to get yourself out of it. I, are you sort of saying that too? So much so, Lonnie. You know, one of the great things Larry said to me when I would be so frightened to go and perform this piece, he would say to me, it isn't about you. Mm, and it took me a while to understand <laughs> that because I really, not from an ego point of view, but it, it took so much from me and I, that's what I felt. But now I understand it gives me so much. And what he was really saying to me was this idea of being in service uh, to something greater than yourself, to an idea, an idea that belongs to all of us, the idea of freedom, the idea of dignity for people. Um, and one of the great struggles that I had was writing for the black characters in the play, and I thought, well, I have no right to speak for them. I, who, how do I know? How, have, uh, how can I walk in those shoes and understand that life to the degree that I can write dialogue for that person? And part of it came out of remembrance and memory and the great love that I had for the, the women who took care of me while being separated by law from their own children. Mm. And they took care of me with great love and care and kindness and joy. So I had that, some of that in my ear, but then one of the, um, the young characters in the play, um, one of the things that I, I wrote to in the Syringatry is the children who lost their lives fighting for freedom in South Africa. And, and one of the things I said to Larry was, I, I don't know how to write that. I don't know how to go there, how to be in that person. And he said to me, if you don't speak for her, who will? Mm. And then I understood a responsibility as an artist that in a way, it may not be the exact words that she may have said, it may not be, but it's my feeling and my love and my care. And, um, and if that is of service to that idea, 
then I'm the lucky fish who gets to give that. Yes. Um, so I love what you said about... Because um, uh, I perform my piece as well, and sometimes, you know, it's eight a week, and my voice is fried, and, you know, <laughs> I, I sort of <laughs> trudge my way, and I think, and I sometimes say, oh, because about Ed Cleaver, I say, oh, Ed, just do this one for you. Know, the, you know, <laughs> it's for you anyway. Right. Just, just, and once I get myself out of it, right. I can, I'm, yeah, it's, I'm you fine. You notice that there are so many of our directors come out of actors, and I wonder if that's an important part of, of directing, that you direct, because as an actor, you knew what you wanted to do. I don't know of, of directors turning into actors. Oh, I bet there's very few, very little of that. I couldn't go back and act now. It's been ten, it was yeah. 10 years for me to get back. Uh, no, I'm, too, I'm too, scared. too scared. I yeah. think uh, <laughs> we, we should take a break on that. Sure. Uh, opening line, a closing okay. line for the moment. I'd like to come back to that, Isabel, if I may. And also, uh, I wanted to also, when we come back, August, talk to you about bo both your education and what Pamela says in terms of, of that experience, too. So I guess yeah. we'll take a little break and come back. Mm -hmm. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. This one is on the playwright, directors, and choreographers. But before returning to our panelists, I would like to remind you that these seminars and the Tony Awards given for excellence in theatre are only a part of the activities of the American Theatre Wing. They are perhaps the most visible efforts, but the Wing is so much more. As a not-for-profit charity, the Wing's mission is to promote excellence in the theater and to provide educational and humanitarian services through the theater we all love. Our meaningful programs for students include Introduction to Broadway, which in its 10th year history has enabled close to 100,000 high school students to attend a Broadway show many for the first time. The Wing also introduces young people to theater and the magic it unfolds by bringing professionals into schools for workshops as a part of our theater in school program. Additionally, the Wing's hospital program, dating back to World War II when we created the legendary stage door canteens, continues to provide volunteer professionals to entertain patients in hospitals, nursing homes, aid centers, and child care facilities. Additionally, our grants and scholarship program provides support where it is so needed. We take great pride in the work we do and remain grateful to our members and everyone who helps make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theatre Wing. Our work strengthens the ties between the theatre, the community, and the school. We are proud to be a part of this very great effort. Having said that, now let's return to our fascinating panel on playwrights, directors, and choreographers, and our moderator, George White. George? Thank you, Isabel. <laughs> We've been talking uh, about um, the education in, uh, of our panel and their backgrounds, and I sort of purposely saved uh, August's background for last 
so I confess to a setup here. But, uh, uh, I see. <laughs> uh, but I know that you've got your de facto degree from, what is it, the Pittsburgh Public Library? Yes. Um, library. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I, you know, I think that's very important. Uh, tell us about that, because uh, what you read, there, there are two questions here, August. That and, and the fact that um, you certainly do um, speak for generations of the black experience, not specifically in, in Pittsburgh, out of which you came, but uh, universally. And so let's start with your education. And I, I know that you uh, dropped out around uh, 15 years old or something. I was 15, actually. Uh, yeah, I dropped out of school when I, when I was 15. Uh, and uh, I always say I dropped out of school, but I didn't drop out of life. Uh, and I didn't want my mother to know that I wasn't going to school, so I would get up every day as though I were going to school. And uh, I would go to the library, to Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh. And it was a huge library, and I, I actually thought they had every book that had ever been printed there. And one of the things about uh, going to the library, in, 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 in formal education, you have to prove a proficiency in something in order to move on to the next level, so you know algebra and you move on to calculus, et cetera. It's not like that at the library. You know? <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, they don't even ask you if you can read. You say, I, I want this book, and they give you the book. <laughs> so I was able, I went to the library, and I was able to read anything I wanted. So I would read books on theology and, you know. But what made you do that? This, okay, I, mean, I knew a little bit, I, I confess to knowing a certain amount about this. But what made you choose what you chose? Because oh, I was interested. I, having gone to Catholic school, for instance, I was interested. I was trying to figure out the, the Holy Trinity, which they said you couldn't figure out. And so I thought, well, let me figure it out. You know, <laughs> uh, you know it's just things that were interesting uh, to me, you know, uh, books on uh, social, social anthropology, you know. Uh, there were things that I put off the shelf I didn't understand. For, uh, uh, Clyde Levi Strauss, The Origin of Table Manners, you know, I attempted to read that. Uh, I didn't understand what he was talking about, but I, I simply told myself, okay, I have to find out some more things before I can do this. So I'm going to come back to this book, and I'm going to be able to take it off the shelf, and I'm going to be able to understand what he's saying. But in the meantime, I've got to go over here and do this. So I sort of plotted my own education. I spent five years in, in the library, and it was, uh, I don't know, it was, to me, it was just a wonderful uh, uh, way of doing it, you know. So I more or less educated myself. And when I was, uh, in 1987, I had occasion to uh, speak at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh in their lecture series, and I took uh, uh, with me a book, uh, Paul Luntz Dunbar, the collected poems of Paul Luntz Dunbar that I checked out of the library in 1959. <laughs> 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 and I finally brought it back. <laughs> and I finally brought it back. But see, but the important thing with that was if you, if you knew how many times I had moved which was virtually every time the rent was due, I but I always took that book with me because it was important to me. And why was it? Uh, because it, why was it important? It was poetry, one. It was black poetry, two. It was Paul Lunds Dunbar, and I would read those things aloud. I guess I am a frustrated actor, you know, because I would <laughs> read those aloud. But, I mean, just wonderful book. So whenever I would, you know, move, I always, you know, that book went, some stuff I threw away, but that always went with me. Anyway, I returned this to the library, and they wouldn't take it back. He told me, well, you know, after all this time, you've had it 28 years, you, why don't you just keep it, you know? <laughs> and uh, that's when they, uh, they gave me uh, a diploma, because I always 
said I was a graduate of the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh. And so they gave me this diploma. And uh, to this day, the labor historians uh, say that uh, Andrew Carnegie was a scoundrel and all sorts of things. But I will not, in my presence, allow anyone to speak ill of uh, Andrew Carnegie because it was through him that I, I got my free education. And even then, I didn't know why the, why. It, why don't they charge like a dime or a quarter or something to take the books? It was like free. It was just, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, that's great. And then one last thing. You, you also then, your work uh, was informed by uh, the, the artist Bearden. Is that correct? Romare Bearden, yes. Um, and how did you discover Bearden? Uh, well, I discovered Bearden. My friend Claude Purdy uh, showed me a, a, a book of Romare Bearden called The Prevalence of Ritual. And I looked at that, and, and when I, I just opened the page, and the first thing I, I, I saw, I was, I was stunned by it because it was me, for, first of all. But he had presented uh, black life in, in all of its richness and fullness and its ritualistic aspects. But without the sentimentality, you know, it was, it was just a very, very kind of uh, presentation. And I thought, that I wanted my plays to, and this was 77, to be the, my work, to be the equal of that. And if I could somehow get all of that into my work without the sentimentality, then, then I would be uh, uh, satisfied as an artist. And so I, I consciously uh, set out to, to try to do that. And then Bearden said, I try to explore in terms of the life I know best, those things which are common to all culture. So I thought, okay, the life I know best was his black life in America. To find within the, the commonalities of culture and then the, to present that. Uh, the, this, this, as, as James Baldwin called, this field of manners and rituals of intercourse that can sustain a man once he left his father's house. So I thought, well, let me put that on stage and to demonstrate, one, that it exists, and two, to demonstrate that it's capable of sustaining you, that you are fully clothed in manners and a way of life. Uh, that is uniquely and, and particularly yours, peculiarly yours. So really you harnessed your experience um, that the, the evolution of August Wilson is from the experience that you grew up with to the library that gave you, again, that metal furniture, and then the, the Bearden experience. The guide, as a mentor. Tied yeah. it together mm -hmm. for you, which yes. is in the evolution of a playwright. Which in your particular case, uh, I think is, is well, it's maybe not unique, but it's very special. I mean, other mm -hmm. people have that, but that's absolutely true. Yes. That's, that's, that's terrific. Um, what about, I'll, I'll go back to um, uh, Rebecca, what about, uh, you, you said that you have a, a background where your grandfather was in vaudeville, so you came out of a different kind of tradition, perhaps. Well, yes. Um, he was um, in vaudeville when having an actor uh, marry your, uh, marry into the family was not a, a good thing. So uh, he was in vaudeville, and when he married my grandmother, who I never met him or never met my grandmother, uh, <clears throat> he got out of vaudeville. But I, when I was a very little girl in this small town, and my tradition in my family was not, we didn't go to the theater because we were in a little tiny town in Indiana. But when I was a little girl, like six, there are, stories of me saying, oh, I'm an actress on a stage, and I would go down, and his memorabilia was kept in, in the basement in a, uh, a crate, and I would go through and imagine what this life and this person was. So it was through that that I became an, and then I would play, you know, downstairs dress-up. <laughs> My mother thought did I you, would never grow up. Did you have an experience <laughs> with 
the legitimate theater? I mean, not until I theater? was in college. In Kokomo, I mean, did you ever seen a play or a musical in in a theater? Not until. Uh, well, I was in a high school plays, but mm -hmm. I didn't really see professional actors until I went to college, and I saw um, The Visit. I will mm -hmm. never forget it. The with visit. the Lunt? No, uh, with the, uh, I can't think of her name. Well, it doesn't matter which one. Yeah. Anyway, so the, the, the vaudeville and, you know, what it was to be an actor and what that life was like was interesting to me. Well, and uh, Randy, what about you? Did you, uh, well, you said, you, you were in Ohio, you went to Ohio State? I went to Ohio State. But before that? My parents put me in class at age four. It's, um, you said you were dancing at four. Yep. Uh, it's right out of, of Chorus Line, speaking of Ed Cleveland. Um, somebody in the neighborhood was going, and I went along, and she dropped out, and I stayed. It's, <laughs> that's the story. And, uh, yeah, and they were very supportive parents and gave me every opportunity, and uh, no dancers in the family that we know of, um, <coughs> that I know of. So it was unusual for a boy to be put in class at age four in the Midwest, but uh, they did it, and just very supportive. And then I have a degree in communications from Ohio State, so uh, that's... It's a fallback on it. Actually, it's, it's really helped in communicating with, uh, with artists. It's, I use that degree uh, a lot. Mm. Midwe the Midwest was, uh, I don't know if your experience in Ohio was like, I mean, you know, you could be in a play in high school, but that was to further your communicative skills so that you could get a real job. It wasn't so that you could have a life in the theater. Right. I don't think anybody really thought about it. It's just, uh, it's things everybody did. And, and uh, I mean, we thought about it if you were hooked, but I don't think anybody promoted it necessarily in the Midwest. Certainly not with boys. They, little girls used to take dance, but not a lot of guys. There wasn't much promoting it going on in my family either, as I recall. Well, tell me about that. No, uh, I was Jewish, lower middle class, and <laughs> you weren't going to go into the theater as a choice. First, my first choice was be pre-med, and if I didn't have good enough <laughs> grades for that, I could settle for pre-dent. And when I found out that I was a complete <coughs> loser in sciences altogether, I spoke uh -huh. to a buddy next to me. I said, uh-oh. How do I get out of college on time? He said, well, go to the theater department. You can probably get out on time. They're nice people. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And I got out on time. Uh, yeah, yeah well, you certainly did. But that, that's it. That's it. Well, of course, again, uh, well, dancing, uh, you're right, in the middle, or anywhere, was, uh, particularly for guys, was... Yeah. Uh, Unusual. Yeah. Yeah, unusual. I, mean, I played yeah. sports all through school, so I think that balanced it out. Well, dance so made you. You were a left fielder, period. you said. <laughs> yeah, and I ran track and played basketball, so um, George, I think, you know. yeah. I'd like to know how we got back into, or not got back into, or into the choreographer-director. It's always either the director or the choreographer. Now you are the choreographer-director. How did that come about, and which takes precedence? I mean, from a dancer? How did it, well, my introduction that I said earlier, uh, working for Gower and David Merrick, I didn't really set out to choreograph. I came here with just dreams of dancing and performing, and I still feel it's, it's in many ways, it's the easiest thing to do because you just worry about yourself and, and nobody else up on stage. But Lonnie was asking how people get started. Um, I think people who come to the city with aspirations of directing or choreographing, the best way today is to try to hook up and assist somebody and you get in through the fold that way. The next step is then how do you get your own script and your own play to do. But a lot of people have come up through the ranks now assisting and through being an associate director and associate choreographer. PSMs now, production stage managers often, that's a way that and and they go on. That was the old on. way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 
And now we're going to um, throw this um, session open to questions. So we have uh, a young lady who has a question. Hi, Please. my name is Nisha Sellers, and this question is for Lonnie. Um, we're curious, how did you delineate between the different processes of conception, performance, and direction in the class act? Uh, I, I never intended to play the role, uh, is, the, is really the truth. Uh, I, uh, two days before we went into rehearsal for the Manhattan Theatre Club production, by the way, you were talking about nine months of, I've been working on this show for seven years. <laughs> so it's been a very long, long, we did a lot of workshops, a lot of readings, none of which I performed in. Um, and uh, then three days before the Manhattan Theatre Club production, um, the man who I cast got a television series. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, obviously, the difference in money was um, not even questionable. I mean, there's nothing to say about it. And he left, and I started offering it to um, a bunch of other people. And uh, Lynn Meadow, who had known Ed Kleban, had called me up and said uh, uh, the people I was offering it to, she didn't feel were right for it and that I should do it. And um, I uh, said, that's nuts, because I'm already wearing one too many hats, having written it, co-written it, and directing it. Uh, and she said, no, we'll give you whatever support, you know, because I know that... She said something which was, which was very helpful. She said, you know that if you don't have the right guy in the middle of that show, no matter what you do, it's not going to work. And that was an argument I couldn't uh, argue with. I thought, she's right. Because if, you know, and we were offering, it is a... But you had a chance to visualize the production as a director before you had to step in as the lead actor? Did you well, have a yes. sense of it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I had been working I on did, it for six years, I did, so I, I did, yeah, knew when I did what dance with me on Broadway, and I was the co-star. I had never, ever seen the piece from the outside. After six mm. months on Broadway, I finally replaced myself, and I sat out in the audience and watched it for the first time. It was the most amazing evening of my life. There was such garbage on that. No, there was. <laughs> no, there was there was there was uh, there was, uh, there was garbage on that stage that would have never made it to that stage if I had, you know, had ever any chance to get outside wow. initially. Well, <laughs> what, what I did in this particular case, I have a wonderful cover, and I staged the show on the cover. Uh, is essentially oh, good. what yes, I did, yes. so that I could bounce back and forth. And uh, his name is Danny Burstein, and I learned so much watching from watching work. him yeah. that he was really my teacher. And, uh, and then I also had an associate director who would help me, and uh, that was... But uh, I don't recommend doing all three things. I think it's, mm -hmm. it's really... it's hard. But uh, it was also fascinating because I think acting in the show helped me with the writing of it. Because I knew what the actor was missing from the material to get me from point A to point B. So my hope is, is that all of it helped each other. Um, and uh, also having a very generous cast was, was very yeah. useful. Yeah. He's very lucky. Sir. Hi, my name is Nathaniel. I have a question for Mr. Wilson. Um, as a playwright, did you feel any difference having a play produced off-Broadway as compared to on-Broadway? Uh, no, it was the, it was the uh, actually the same rehearsal uh, process. Uh, uh, the, no, there wasn't any difference. Uh, I, I think the only difference is, is looking at uh, off-Broadway and Broadway as different marketplaces. Uh, if you're talking about commercial theater, but uh, for me and for the actors and everyone, it was the same work uh, uh, and, and the same dedication to the work, uh, irrespective of uh, uh, where the play was done. Does anybody else have a comment on that off-Broadway, Broadway scene? Of course, uh, Joel, you've been in both places, too. I've been off, 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 off. Uh, yes. no, the, the process remains the same. Uh, 
except that they do tend to put slightly more pressure on you. The more money they tend to put into your, uh, into your play, you get more points of view and more input than you need. I would, I would say, I would say that's absolutely the case because the gathering was at Playhouse 91 with Theodore Bickell before, and now it's being done here with Hal Linden, and the pressure is much greater this time because there's more money spent and there's more money to spend on sets, and there's just more money. Is that you know that the the money is, seems to be the difference? But August, you felt that same. it was the same. The work is the same. work is the same. The work is the same. The key is to protect the work so the work can stay the same. Not to allow it to become pressurized and to be uh, something it should not be simply because there's more money involved. Mm -hmm. Great. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Margot Evan Goldman. I'm an actor. This question is directed towards Mr. Skinner. What is the difference in <coughs> choreographing a revival versus a new musical? That's a good question. Uh, a revival, I think, is a little easier because the work has been done ahead of time as far as integrating the book and the songs and the scenes and, the, and where the musical numbers are placed. This is an interesting revival because two-thirds of it is all new staging and choreography. We're paying tribute to the past like the revival of Chicago did, uh, blending the old and the new. But we also have three new numbers that never appeared in 1980. So that was uh, an interesting exercise to figure out where the new songs were going to happen and where we're going to place them for the character development. And then having bigger sets is also um, when you do a revival, you have to bring something new to it that uh, almost fools the people's minds from 20 years ago, because we're not that old. We're not like 50 years old, and so we've tried to bring a movie element to it and make it bigger. But I think it's just easier because you're not going through the heartache of integrating everything the first time. Musicals are by far the hardest things, I think, to put together because you've got music, dance, and, and book, three elements that have to be coordinated. So revivals, that work's been done for you. But you don't feel that, that um, uh, or the ghosts are really looking over your shoulder, the ghosts of er in every sense are looking over your shoulder particularly? Well, I think you have to try to downplay that. And I think you have to bring a new stamp. It's a new audience. We have a lot of new people seeing it for the first time. Um, it is a beloved show because it ran eight and a half years originally. So um, that was the reason to pay respect to that memory. But then we all realized you have to bring something new and make it bigger than what an audience remembered the first go-around, particularly with this genre, which is a, a huge, huge musical. Yeah. Good. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Lauren. Um, I was wondering if any of you are sharing your skills by teaching, and if so, where? Well, I teach at USC School of Cinema. I teach uh, television directing. And I've been doing that for a few years now and really enjoy it. And before that, I was at uh, various, I taught at Yale School of Drama for a while, at Brooklyn College, at Queen College, at Wheaton College, and now I'm at USC. Uh, how about anybody else? Anybody I, I started teaching and then stopped. Um, the teaching really led to the directing because I was teaching and then I produced for my students a, uh, a company for five years upstate. It was a, an equity company. And then from that, uh, realized that life could be more about raising money for a small not-for-profit theater and went into directing. Uh, I would like to go back to teaching, but it was actually, in some cases, after doing a lot of teaching, a relief to go to a rehearsal and just, to, you know, just say, uh, let's have a result instead of, the process is the same in rehearsal, but uh, there's, the teaching aspect of, of rehearsal was not there <clears throat> once I left, left the classroom. Did anybody else have a, well, you, 
Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, now I'm performing eight times a week, and uh, so there's there's uh, and also running my theater. So there's 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 precious little time for just about anything else. Uh, but I'd very much like to. I'd very much like to teach. I, the, the little guest teaching I've done in several places uh, has been exciting to me, so it's something I think in the future I'd like to do more of. And challenging. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. it's great. Well, Pamela, you, you were actually seem to have come out of a teaching experience, wasn't it, for you that, that had that? I most certainly have, and I'm so grateful. I think the, uh, the great gift in our lives is the teachers that we come across as we move through our journeys. and. Um, for me, um, I think the, you know, I went to Larry Moss's class invited by somebody and um, he had seen a performance of something that I had done and it was quite funny because uh, the person said, oh, uh, Larry saw you and he said you should come right away. <laughs> I thought that would mean that I was so bad <laughs> really quickly. <laughs> but um, I was very intimidated because where I, you know, um, in the sort of culture that I come from, studying with an acting teacher after you had done your formal so-called training was something that you did if you didn't work a lot or if you had no career. Or if you, and here, of course, it's the great gift for actors to learn the craft and to be, you know, I now understand that it would be my joy to be in class for the rest of my life. Um, so I, I'm so deeply, deeply grateful. And then the other thing is the directors that one works with and the writers, you know, you, you have occasion to learn so much um, from that. Well, of course, the Henry Adams once said that a teacher affects eternity. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and indeed, it's, it's true. August, are you going to teach? Well, I did. Uh, I, I taught a, a quarter at uh, Dartmouth College, a uh, course in playwriting in, in uh, 1998, and it was uh, I, the first time I'd been in a classroom in 38 years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I found it absolutely delightful. It was a very uh, joyful uh, uh, process for me. I learned some things, and uh, I'm anxious uh, to do it again, actually. Yeah. What, what did you learn? Well, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to articulate mm -hmm. what I learned. I was in the process of writing King Hedley at the time and trying to explain to the students because, you know, I only had them for a quarter and you can't teach anyone how to write a play, I mean, even if you had, you know, five years. But I tried to teach them how to go inside themselves and discover what it is that they made, that they have to say. And in the process of doing that, I was also doing the same thing. And I go, oh, yes, I forgot. This is how you get at that, you know. Yeah. So uh, I, I, it helped me in, in writing my play, you know. Yeah, any also directing and, 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 and playwriting, can you really teach it? You just said you probably couldn't. What you, anyone, can you really teach any of these things? Or do you just get lucky? There are probably certain rudiments of directing you yeah. could mm -hmm. teach. There, there's, um, there's a craft. There would be yeah. some. There is a craft that exists that can be taught, I believe. But in terms of your uh, someone's personal take on the material, That's as, as August was saying, delving deep, that is so personal, and one's response to material is so, so personal, personal that every it, I can't imagine there, it would be not possible to have the same production of, with two directors directing. Yeah. You know, with one and one, it would never be the same. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Craft craft can be taught. You, you can know. teach craft. But, uh, but also craft can be self-taught because there's so many brilliant examples, I mean, in terms of playwriting, a craft that's right. around you. Just go pick up, go to the library, pick up a book, pick up Chekhov, yeah. and you want to know about craft or, you know, so the examples are there. But then after you do the how do you use the craft mm -hmm. is, is the thing that I was like trying, trying to get at it. And so when I walked in, I said, we're not going to talk about uh, playwriting, we're not going to talk about rising action, falling, we're not going to talk about none of that stuff. 
You see, because you can learn that on your own. You go to the library and pick up the book and learn that. But what do you do after you know that? And that's what we, that's what we tried to get to. You know? and I'm so sorry. It is my sorry task to interrupt this wonderful, wonderful panel. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm chairman of the board of the American Theatre Wing. And this has been a most exciting and educational panel. It's been on the choreographer, the director, and the playwright. And it's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I can't thank this panel enough for being here and for George White, the moderator, for doing such a fabulous job of bringing forth what it is to work in the theater. Thank you so very much for being here. <laughs>